Well, if you have a a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me back to that passage in 2 Kings chapter 3 as we uh, continue our series in the life of the prophet Elisha. Now, last time that we were looking at the life of Elisha, we considered that amazing scene there at the end of chapter 2 where God had come down in judgment, that large mob of mocking young people faced God's wrath there at the end of 2 Kings chapter 2. We've thought of that scene where 42 youths were mauled by those two bears because of their scorn of God's prophets. But this morning I want to move on from that remarkable occasion into the events of the early part here of chapter 3, events that deal with these three kings. These three kings, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And the scene here changes quite dramatically from what we've been considering over these past uh, few weeks. We move on to a passage that now deals with war and and politics. We move away from children and and bears and, and so on, and we come into one of kings and diplomacy. And so I want us to look at this passage together with you this morning. I want us to notice three things uh, from this passage. And I think the first thing that we notice in this passage is a foolish alliance. A foolish alliance. We're introduced in verse 1 to this new king of Israel, King Jehoram, who was the son of Ahab. And when he ascends uh, the throne of the northern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, The godly king has been on the throne of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, for some 18 years already. We read that there in in verse 1. And we read that Jehoram was a wicked king. In verse 2, he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, he was not as wicked as his parents, but it says, nevertheless, in verse 3, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam. It's interesting just to pause and note that the language here implies that there are degrees of sin. Some sins are worse than other sins. Some sins are more vile and heinous than others. And Jehoram was not as evil as Ahab and Jezebel. That was a, that was a good thing. But while he did not indulge in some of those grosser and more vile sins that his parents had done, still we read here he wrought evil in the sight of of the Lord's. And it was at this time when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against Jehoram there in verses 4 and 5. The Moabites, you'll recall, were the enemy of God's people, uh, but during the, the reign of David, he had conquered them. He'd conquered the land of Moab. In actual fact, uh, twice in the Psalms, David declares, Moab is my washpot. And in 2 Samuel 8 and verse 2, it tells us that the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. And so it appeared that ever since David's day, the Moabites had to pay a tax to Israel. And it was a heavy tax. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, it tells us that he rendered unto the king of Israel an hundred thousand lambs and an hundred thousand rams with the wool. This is a, a very heavy burden for this country to pay. Not a, not a great big nation, but they had to pay this tax every year to the king of Israel. But Misha, the king of Moab, he now refuses to pay this tax. With Ahab dead, he says, I'm not going to pay this tax anymore. And Jehoram was not happy with this. And so in verse 4, it tells us that he, uh, 
in verse 6, rather, it tells us that he went and numbered all Israel. He goes and he counts up his troops. He looks at the young men that are available to him and he, he assesses the strength of his, his army. Has he got enough firepower to pull this Moabite king back into line and you know, teach him a lesson or two? Well, it would appear that he was not necessarily overly confident in the size of his army because in verse 7 he then sends word to the king of Judah. And he says to Jehoshaphat, he says, look, will you not join with me? Will you not come with me to battle to go up against Moab? After all, the Moabites were also the enemies of Judah as well. And he responds there in verse 7. And he says, I will go up. And he says, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. Jehoshaphat immediately agrees to, to go with him. And that's a, that's a very interesting answer that Jehoshaphat gives because if you know the history of Jehoshaphat and you know what Jehoshaphat was like, now we haven't time this morning to explore this all in, in great detail, what's gone on before this point in the previous 18 years of his, his reign. But if you just turn with me for a moment to 2 Chronicles and chapter 17. And go on a couple of books, 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Because here we're given a description of the character of this man, Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles and chapter 17. And we have this continuous narrative here for the next few chapters of Jehoshaphat's life. And you'll notice in 2 Chronicles and chapter 17 and verse 3, it tells us that the Lord, that's Jehovah, was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam. If you go into verse 5, it tells us, Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents, and he had riches and honor in abundance. Verse 6, And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Jehoshaphat was a godly king. He served the Lord. He even sent out Levites, we're told, into the cities of Judah with, with the book of the law to instruct the people. You can read that in verses 7 through to 9 there. He wanted to teach them morality and religion, teach them the things of God. And in verse 10 it tells us, And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. It tells us that he waxed exceedingly in verse 12. He was a godly and prosperous king. But you know, sadly, even the best of men have their flaws. If you go on into the next chapter, chapter 18 in verse 1, it says, Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. He joined affinity with Ahab. He made, he entered into this close reliance with the notoriously wicked King Ahab. And in verse 3, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, he says, will you not come with me to Ramoth Gilead? This is 2 Chronicles 18 verse 3. Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to go and fight a fight, will you come with me? And Jehoshaphat said exactly the same thing. He says, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people. And we will be with thee in the war. They're very familiar words, aren't they? They're almost identical to what we've just read in 2 Kings chapter 3. 
Now, if you know this particular passage of Scripture, you know that Jehoshaphat goes with Ahab despite God expressingly, expressively warning them that their mission would fail. The Lord told them that this was a futile adventure and not to go. And if you know what happens at the end of 2 Chronicles 18, Ahab was killed, he disguised himself, he went out into the battle, somebody fired an arrow and it struck Ahab, and Ahab died, and Jehoshaphat though was mercifully spared. In verse chapter 19 and verse 1, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, returned to his house in peace. And there's a sense in which those words are, can you not see the mercy of God? Jehoshaphat had disobeyed God, but the Lord had wonderfully brought him back in peace to his own land. But then you look at 2 Chronicles 19 and verse 2, the next verse. The Lord sent a prophet The Lord sent a man to speak to Jehoshaphat. It says, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. You see, Jehu has to tell Jehoshaphat, You've made a foolish alliance with a wicked man. It almost cost you your life and now God's wrath is upon you because you made this this foolish uh, allegiance to to Ahab. Now you'd think that Jehoshaphat would have learned his lesson. That was a number of years before 2 Kings chapter 3, the passage that we're in this morning. But Jehoshaphat again, he makes an affinity, not with Ahab this time, but with Ahab's son. And he agrees to enter another battle side by side with another wicked king. The last conflict had ended in disaster. And why did Jehoshaphat think this would be any different? I think, friends, here this morning there's a a warning for us that we should not join forces with those who hate God and who, who do not love the things that God loves. We should not join forces with those who are opposed to the ways of the Lord. Light cannot have communion with darkness. Remember what Paul wrote in that passage that we just read. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? We're not to join forces with those who are against God. Solomon at the beginning of Proverbs also stresses this. In in Proverbs chapter 1 as he speaks to his son there and he warns him and gives him wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1 we have this is continually telling his son not to to go with the way of sinners. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And you can read the verses there that follow all the warnings that Solomon gives, how he says that, look, if you go with them, their feet run to evil, they make haste to shed blood, and so so on. Verse 19, so are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain. Don't go with such people, he says. Or you think of the words of David in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And friends, we must be so careful in every association and friendship that we make. And of course, this is particularly true of marriage. Young people here this morning, be careful who you make friends with. Be careful who you enter into friendships with, even at school. Perhaps you know the expression, if you fly with the crows, you'll be stoned with the crows. 
I heard that a number of times growing up. Be careful who you hang around with. And believers this morning, we need to be careful who we have as our friends. Are we our friends worldly friends? Are their conversations generally only about things of time and never of eternity? Are they carnal? How much time do they spend on, on the things of this world? Do they encourage you to do goods? Are your friends those who promote holiness in your life? Do they live closely with Christ? Do they encourage you in the ways of the Lord? They're the kind of friends that you want as believers. Remember what James tells us. He tells us in no uncertain terms that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Now, of course, we live in this world. We rub shoulders with people in this world. But the point is that we're not to have an alliance with such people. We're to be careful. We should seek at all costs to avoid those who love this present world. Jehoshaphat here made a, made a foolish alliance with a wicked man. And so we need to be reminded here that we need to be careful in our friendships too. Now secondly, though, we've seen this foolish alliance, but notice secondly this morning a failed mission. A failed mission. Jehoshaphat here, back in 2 Kings chapter 3, he agrees to assemble his army and join with Jehoram. And in verse 8, uh, Jehoram says to Jehoshaphat, well, which way shall we go? We're going to go up and fight against the king of Moab, but which way are we going to go? And, and Jehoshaphat answers and says, the way through the wilderness of Edom. Now, this was not the quickest route, nor was it the most obvious way to Moab. The obvious way to attack Moab was directly from the north. Israel and Moab bordered each other. And that would have been the obvious way to go, to go through Israel, down through, and hit Moab from the north. But instead, they decide to attack from the south, which was a far longer journey, and it was a journey that took them through the country of Edom. Now, perhaps this route was chosen because it contained uh, the element of surprise, the Moabites would never expect, you know, an attack from the south. Also, if they came from the, the north, there was the possibility that Syria might become involved in this war and they'd be pulled into the fray. And the Syrians, you recall, they'd defeated Israel. They'd almost killed Jehoshaphat in that war that we spoke about a moment ago in 2 Chronicles. And so perhaps they wanted to avoid that. Let's, let's not go that way. We don't want to bring Syria into this conflict as well. Also, going through Edom, perhaps Jehoshaphat knew he could bring the king of Edom with him as they went to fight the Moabites. At this time, the king of Edom, he was under attacks, just like the Moabites were taxed by Israel. And so you notice there in verse 9, the king of Edom does join with them. As they go through this, uh, the wilderness of Edom, we notice that the, the king of Edom uh, joins along with them. And so this seems like a good plan. Don't bring Syria in to this. Let's have the element of surprise. Let's strengthen our forces by bringing in the king of Edom. What a great plan. This is going to, it's going to win. We're going to, we can't fail to win. You can imagine at this point, can't you, the three kings advancing through this desert with this vast army. They're exuding confidence and enthusiasm. They look at the troops. They, they look at their equipment. It inspires them with, with courage Perhaps they were even flattering themselves at how easy this victory was going to be. You know, what a whipping they were going to give to this rebellious, you know, Moab, the king of Moab. The victory was going to be assured. 
Strength and surprise were on their side. I mean, what could go wrong? Well, you notice in verse 9 that this seemingly good plan of Jehoshaphat's began to slowly unravel and turn into a disaster. In verse 9, we read that they fetched a compass of seven days' journey and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. They went to fight with Moab, but an unexpected enemy appeared instead. And we find this huge army with all its horses and all its camels and all the cattle that followed, they began to thirst. The heat, I would imagine, became intolerable. Their throats began to dry up, this huge army looking for water. They couldn't find any anywhere. Perhaps there wasn't even shade for these troops just to take a momentary rest, the sun beating down upon them. And so after seven days of marching, this this vast army, it's threatened with destruction before it's even fought a battle. Jehoshaphat's seemingly good plan was fundamentally flawed. And it was flawed because he'd forgotten God. He'd forgotten the Lord, hadn't he? Whatever the reason was for choosing this particular plan, not once did any of these kings consult the Lord's. They pursued their own course and they followed their own wisdom and they thought they would win victory by their own means. They sadly trusted in an arm of flesh instead of turning to the Lord of hosts. Not once did they seek Elisha, the servant of the Lord. Not once did they desire to find out the will and mind of God. You remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned this, isn't he? That God is the one who doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And friends, this morning we need to remind ourselves of this, don't we? That whatever we seek to do in this life, no matter how sensible and obvious it may appear, we should always consult God's words. No matter matter what we do, God's word is our rule for instruction, for faith and practice. And we haven't time this morning to open up this great subject of guidance, but this is our guiding principle, isn't it? Not our feelings, not our emotions, not our circumstances, but it's this book. We have to wait on the Lord's. We have to come to this book honestly and sincerely, weigh everything according to the rules and principles and laid down by God in this book. Now, I've met people a little bit like Jehoshaphat. Perhaps you've done this too. Let me give you a classic example. A gentleman came to me once. His job had been winding down for some time. It was coming to an an obvious end. At the same time as his job was coming to an end, another company phoned him up and offered him a job Almost exactly the same, very similar line of work. The job was far better paid. Actually, it was better hours. He could spend more time with his family, more time with his children. I mean, it seemed you know, that the Lord had provided this just at the right moment. It seemed so obvious. The only snag was that the family were going to have to move house, move to a different area, change town, change church. But... The Lord had provided this job, Jehovah Jireh, surely he's going to provide everything else that we need. We're going to go in faith. So they move, new town, new location, new work. But when they got to the town, they discovered there was no church. So then you get asked the question, what should I do? Can you you recommend somewhere to go to church? It reminds me a little bit 
of what an Irishman once said to me. I said to him, do you know where such and such a place is? He said, yes. I said, can you tell me the way? He said, I wouldn't start from here. And it's a little bit like that with this. You'd gone the wrong, you'd, you've gone, gone about it all the wrong way. There's a failure to consult God's. You see, the material blessing for that person outweighed the spiritual priority. Like these three kings, they, he'd, in a sense, he'd made a seven-day journey. But he hadn't actually sought the Lord's. And now he's thirsty. He's looking for a place to worship. And we can do this about so many things in our lives, can't we? We need to use the word of God's and to seek guidance from him. As I said, we haven't time to open up this such a big subject Guidance, but Psalm 25 is a wonderful psalm for, for guidance. Read it, pray over it. If you want to know the Lord's will in your life. And so we see here a failed mission from these people. Jehoshaphat didn't seek the Lord, didn't turn to Elisha, didn't seek God's will. And what a disaster. Seven days, no water. I want to move on then from this. We've seen... These two things this morning, we've seen this foolish alliance, we've seen this failed mission, but just notice lastly with me, a futile trust. A futile trust. After these seven days of weary marching, eventually Jehoram's conscience is pricked. The king of Israel, something begins to kick in, as it were, in his mind, and he cries out in verse 10, Alas, that the Lord have called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Jehoram believes that all three of them are under the condemnation of God. That this disaster is because of the providence of God. It's the Lord that's called them together. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's this ungodly king, and now all of a sudden he's using the name of Jehovah. It's his fault. And it's, 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 this is the audacity of the man in some ways. You know, all these troubles belong to him. Not the gods he follows, but it belongs to the Lord. It belongs to Jehovah, the very God that he doesn't trust. And of course, we see the same today, don't we? Atheists, evolutionists, secularists, they begin to hurl abuse at God, who apparently, you know, according to them, doesn't even exist. And they get worked up about things, don't they? And that happen in the world, and they blame God, who they don't even believe is there. Man loves to blame, doesn't he, his present trials on the God that he doesn't believe in. But it seems that this is an outburst, that this outburst from Jehoram, it not only was his conscience pricked, but it then causes Jehoshaphat's conscience to be pricked. And he now begins to do the right thing. In verse 11, he says, There is there not a, here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? I mean, it's only now after seven days of weariness and thirst, only now that he finally seeks the word of God. This is the one who sent the word of God out into all his towns and districts of his own land, and yet he, after seven days he's now looking for it. And so he comes and he asks this question, and one of king of Israel's servants, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? One of the king of Israel's servants knew that Elisha was there, and he says, uh, yes, here's, here's, the, here's Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And we noted that expression a number of weeks ago, right back at the beginning of our studies, this description of Elisha, this expression that speaks of Elisha's servant heart and his great humility, he's willing to pour water on Elijah the prophet's hands. And Jehoshaphat says, well, the word of the Lord's with him. We need to go to him. He's worth listening to. Finally, Jehoshaphat's doing the right thing. God's word, that's worth listening to. 
Now, why Elisha is here at this particular point in the wilderness of Edom is a bit of a a mystery. Perhaps he was following the army under the direction of God. Perhaps the Lord was leading him because he knew this, of course, was going to happen. Either way, on, on hearing that Elisha is here, these three kings go down to meet him. Amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Just imagine the scene for a moment. Three powerful monarchs with a huge army. Yet they're coming in humble supplication, knocking, as it were, on the tent door of this man who used to plough fields. Amazing. Men with great power, and yet now they come to the humble prophet Elisha. It's amazing, isn't it, what affliction can drive even the most prosperous people to do. What an amazing scene. And we would presume, wouldn't we, that you know, Elisha would feel honoured and, and flattered. You imagine three kings coming to your door and knocking on, on your door. You'd, you'd think, that, you know, wow, they've come to see me. You know, surely Elisha's going to bow and, and scrape before them. But that's not what Elisha does here, is it? Instead, immediately he turns to Jehoram, the king of Israel. You notice what he says in verse 13. He says, what have I to do with thee? says, get thee to the, the prophets of thy father and the prophets of thy mother. I mean, there's, you know, there's not even a hello. I mean, his words are cutting. He, here is the king of Israel in, in his hour of need and anxiety, but Elisha just cuts through, through everything with this striking sentence. Jehoram responds by repeating his cry that he's given earlier. He talks about how the, the Lord has brought them here to, to kill them. But Elisha makes it abundantly clear in verse 14 that if it were not for the presence of the godly Jehoshaphat, Elisha would have no regard for him. He, would have, he, would, he wouldn't even give him the time of day. You know, that's often true still today. The unrighteous in this world have much to owe to the presence of God's people. Sodom, you recall, would have been spared if there had been ten righteous in the city. But why does Elisha speak in this way? What is Elisha driving at here as he speaks to Jehoram? Well, surely the point that that Elisha is making here as he speaks to Jehoram is that his gods that he was trusting in were utterly hopeless. He had a futile trust in futile gods. If Jehoram's gods could have saved them, wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't they have been saved? Why couldn't Jehoram turn to them in his time of needs? And that's what Elisha is saying in effect. He says, why are, you, why are you coming to me? You've got your own gods. Go to them. You've got your own prophets. But why aren't you turning to them? But the issue was that they couldn't help. And false gods, of course, can never help. That's the point, isn't it? That it's always futile to be trusting in any god other than the god of the Bible. The gods of this world promise to be a refuge in trouble, but they're refuges of lies. And friends, this morning we need to ask ourselves the question, who is our gods? What is your gods? We all serve something or someone. What is it that you're trusting in this morning? Who is it that you serve? Who is it that you adore? Who is it that you place your confidence in? Is it self-interest? Is it pleasure? Or perhaps it's some form of religion. Is that your gods? Let me ask you, how much of your time, your conscience, your, your property, your zeal, do you, do you sacrifice to these gods of yours? How many of your thoughts and words and decisions and, and actions are regulated and governed by the false gods that you serve? 
Let me ask you this morning, your your gods may seem great now in times of prosperity, but will they be able to help you when your soul stands before the almighty God on that final day? You see, Jehoram was finding out here that his gods were futile. Seven days of thirst, could they help him? And sadly, there'll be many on that final day when God will say to them, just like Elisha did here, what have I to do with thee? They'll come knocking, as it were, at the door of God, and God will say, I have, I've got nothing to do with you. You know, friends, this morning, there is only one foundation that's trustworthy, and that's Christ. His atoning death and his shed blood are the only means of forgiveness for sins. He is the only one worth trusting. He is the only one that we should place our confidence in. The work of Calvary is the only work that's, that's worth holding on to. If our trust is not in him, then it's a futile trust. So let me ask you this morning, what about you? Are you like Jehoram? Are you trusting in a false god, a futile god? Or are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? The only foundation, the only sure foundation for sinners. Well, I trust that each one of us here this morning are resting in him and trusting in him. Praise God, there is one that we can trust, even in the deepest affliction, even in the greatest time of need, even in our, in, even in our times of trial. Christ is a, a solid rock that we can rely and depend upon.